I've been doing this work for 30 years now, and there have been so many times, please trust me, that along the 30 years, wonderful, good things have happened because I wouldn't still be doing it. Crime has always been there, and we recognize it now for what it is. If a trafficker initially has the trust of the victim, it is much easier for them to, to capitalize on that trust. Hello and welcome back to Floodlight, the podcast from us here at the Anti-Slavery Collective. We're committed to helping to eradicate what's still a massive problem that affects every one of us. Around 50 million people are enslaved across the world, across all sorts of demographics, locations and societies. But it's a problem that we can all solve together. That's what we're committed to doing at The Collective raising awareness and bringing like-minded people together who are as passionate about tackling this crisis as we are. So thank you so much for listening in. On today's episode, we're delighted to welcome Ambassador Cindy Dyer. Cindy's work supporting survivors of modern slavery is truly remarkable. She served as the director of the Office on Violence Against Women in George W. Bush's government, and is now the current ambassador-at-large to monitor and combat trafficking in persons in President Joe Biden's government. She has a huge amount of experience in this topic. Her work supporting survivors in her home state of Texas and across the entire United States is so admirable. We spoke to Cindy about how her department is fighting traffickers, as well as the support that they have given to survivors looking to rebuild their lives. She is a remarkable woman, so please enjoy. Ambassador Cindy, thank you so much for joining us. It's so lovely to have you on Floodlight. It's, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. Um, Cindy, tell us, you've had a very long and extensive career working to fight against violence against women in general and to advance women's rights across America and beyond, um, and more recently on human trafficking. Um, so tell us, when did you first encounter human trafficking and exploitation? And what was that kind of light bulb moment or that defining moment that really centered your focus? I, the first time that I encountered um, a case of human trafficking, although I will tell you, I didn't know that term at the time. I was a specialized domestic and sexual violence prosecutor in Dallas County, and it was the mid-1990s. And so the Violence Against Women's Act had passed, which was in 1994, but the Trafficking Victims Protection Act had not passed, which was in 2000. And so it was in the mid-1990s, and I um, saw a woman who came to me as a victim of um, intimate partner violence who was a victim of a severe sexual assault. And as I was talking to her, and um, she was telling me about what had happened to her, she was describing a situation that I had not yet seen at this time where she had, um, she had immigrated to the U.S. from Central America, and she had uh, paid a man to help her get across the border, and the man had done that. And then when they got across the border, he said, well, are you needing work? And she said, yes, I am. And so he said, well, I can help you with that, too. And she thought, well, he got me across the border, so maybe he's a good guy. And so she said, okay. So she voluntarily went with him, but then he basically kept her and kept her with fear and with um, physical violence and with threats to expose her um, status as she didn't, she wasn't legally in the United States. 
He said he knew where her family was back home because he had helped her get from her home to where she was. And so she had stayed with him for a couple of years and he had forced her to have sex with other men. And then he took the proceeds of that sex. He had forced her into commercial sex and she was completely trapped by him. He also raped her. And that was the case that I had was his rape of her. And I remember he, he, fortunately, he had been to the penitentiary before. So his aggravated sexual assault case had a really high penalty range, even aside from the trafficking that she was a victim of. And I, as I said, I had never heard of this thing called trafficking. And I remember thinking I have a really good, straightforward sort of aggravated sexual assault case of an intimate partner but I have this other stuff. And I was afraid that a jury in Dallas County wasn't going to understand why this had happened, how, you know. And so I remember saying, you know what, we've got a good case. We're just going to focus on the aggravated sexual assault. And we did. We got a conviction. He went to jail for a long time. But after that, I started seeing more of those cases. And I didn't see a ton, but I saw more of them. And then, of course, once 2000 hit, that's when we really had much of a better understanding and more of an explosion of awareness. Cindy, in, in cases like that, how percentage wise, how many of them actually end up in a successful prosecution, do you think? Um, well, my experience is dated because I am a little long in the tooth. Uh, <laughs> but um, I think that the the biggest problem with the cases is that the victims frequently do not want, number one, they they don't want to talk to law enforcement because they are afraid that they are going to be held criminally responsible for crimes that they were forced to commit, either forced to engage in commercial sex, which is illegal in most of the United States, or forced to take drugs, forced to sell drugs, forced to steal. Um, They're here illegally. So they there's this initial problem with even disclosing themselves as a victim. And then even those that do, that have the courage to do that, the process of then having to testify against the very person who you have been terrified of for years and who you are afraid not only for yourself, but for your family, maybe back home. It's just an overwhelming experience. And so we try to wrap the services and survivor uh, survivors in services so that they feel supported. Um, but even with that, it can still be a really traumatic. And so then it comes to, you know, we try to, if we can get a plea of guilty, use the evidence that we have aside from the victim's testimony, which sometimes can be helpful. Um, we have a pretty, you know, we, we have, Uh, One of the things that I think has been really helpful in the U.S. is that a lot of places, both at the federal government level and at the state and local level, have recognized that this is a really difficult uh, It's difficult for victims. It can be difficult to prosecute. So they have specialized prosecutors who are not only really good at knowing how to get the evidence, how to get it in, how to but also how to be trauma informed and victim-centered when they're working with survivors. And why do you think that there's such a rise in in victims of human trafficking and sexual exploitation? I mean, we've seen a rise in the UK and 
and and I just wondered like what why do you think all of a sudden it's it's on the rise like that I think that it's due to a couple of things I think one thing is greater awareness I think that in some ways the crime has always been there and we recognize it now for what it is um we recognize that it is not simply a person choosing to engage in commercial sex. It's not simply a person um, who is choosing to, you know, maybe, oh, it's just um, a, a migrant worker. It's not actually a trafficking victim. I think that there's a greater awareness in the same way that like me in 1995, you know, um, we are talking about it more. So there's a greater awareness and we recognize victims who have actually always been there, but been a little bit invisible. We're recognizing that men and boys um, can be victims. And this is something that we, you know, far, it was, you know, for a long time, they were not necessarily seen. Um, and then the other thing is, I do think that the COVID pandemic and certainly the increase of online recruitment, online, um, even forced into online um, scams. I think it's just that the COVID and the increase of technology is creating new pathways for vic uh, traffickers to, to engage in their crime and also vulnerabilities to victims. I think, I think that's the issue as well. It's like, it's like traffickers are almost adapting to the, to the ability to like hide and we're becoming aware like you know in our understanding of, of what we've been learning over the past sort of I don't know how long we've been doing this now Jules like too long <laughs> it's yeah too long we need to end it but it's I definitely think that it's um you know things like county lines in the UK and um all the different sort of nuances around human trafficking is definitely um it makes us aware and we're able to speak about it with, with people around us, but it also makes it so, um, so many very tiny little avenues of, of different ways that people can be trafficked. And I think that's something that, yeah, it's hard to combat modern slavery when the traffickers are so savvy and constantly changing the way that they operate. And to your point earlier, you know, this crazy surge in online recruitment is just a whole new kind of, front for us to have to fight as well and I remember when we did a trip to the Ukraine border and at the time people were being trafficked at the Ukraine border in person and you could visibly see traffickers there six months later it had basically all moved online and suddenly the focus was on Facebook groups and other forms of kind of job postings that people were kind of soliciting their victims through um, but w what is your office, the office to monitor and combat trafficking in persons um, doing to tackle these new forms of exploitation? And how on earth do you stay, stay abreast of all these different tactics? Well, I think that I think you bring up a couple of important factors that we certainly are mindful of. And one is that traffickers are nimble and they can pivot and they can find new ways to engage in their crime, in their craft. And so we have to be also nimble and always listening, always listening, especially to survivors who are the best experts at helping us understand 
how traffickers think, how they operate, so that we can stay one step ahead. The second thing that you brought, brought up it, it, when you're in your mention of, as an example, um, the border with uh, Russia's war in Ukraine and Ukraine refugees, um, traffickers are really brilliant at taking advantage of individuals who are vulnerable. They can spot a vulnerability and swoop in on that vulnerability. And that is why we as a society and specifically the, the, the Biden administration and the Office to Combat Trafficking in Persons are really focusing on equity for marginalized communities. We have to do that because that's who the traffickers are targeting. And so whether this be, you know, um, whether it's racial or ethnic minorities, members of the LGBTQI community, um, people who are migrants, people who are immigrants, these are people who the, the traffickers were target. And so we have to be one step ahead and make sure that we're specifically making outreach to those communities. And so that's um, a couple of the things that, that we're doing. And in particular, to the survivor focus that I said, that is such a wealth of information. Survivors have an expertise that can really complement the expertise of social service providers, prosecutors, police officers. And one thing that we have done um, in at the trafficking persons office is we actually have a survivors council we call it our advisory council and that council is made up exclusively of survivors or those of lived experience so that we make sure that everything we do is run through them we even have them look at our projects that we're going to fund we have them look at the trafficking in persons report that we issue every year and help us draft the U.S. narrative portion. Um, so it's not just that you consult with them one time and then the experts go about their business, but no, they are an expert with a constant and consistent seat at the table. Um, we even have um, a, an, uh, we have our consultants network so that we, when we work with survivors, we pay them just as we would uh, pay any other expert that provides editing to our tip report or provides a service to us, we actually can pay them. And um, that's something that I am super, super proud of the, 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 the department and the, the office for doing. And, and how long is your position with the, the office? Is it as long as the presidency's? You're correct. This is a position that is appointed by the president, and then it uh, has to be confirmed by the Senate. And so it is designed. It's one of it's one of those uh, the balance of powers. So we have the executive branch that appoints it, and then the legislative branch has to consider that nominee um, and determine if they're going to uh, confirm the person. And I am profoundly honored and grateful um, that I was unanimously confirmed by the Senate. So both parties, um, both parties uh, agreed to my, and I think that that's actually, this particular position has had that benefit. All of the prior ambassadors, whether they were appointed by a Republican president or a Democratic president, have all been 
you know, approved by this bipartisan legislative process. So we've really tried to make sure that this issue is too important to get caught up in partisan politics. Yeah, amazing. Um, we're very happy that you're the ambassador as well, Cindy, and that you're, you're joining us today. Um, so something that Jules and I have noticed, and I'm sure lots of people um, across the modern slavery and human trafficking world have noticed, is that when you're, as a victim of human trafficking, you're, you're very much, um, you're often groomed and exploited by the people that know you the most. Um, and we, we were talking about vulnerable communities and um, people being less aware of sort of what's going on, but also this notion of, you know, family members or, or partners um, actually being the ones that are, are exploiting you and taking you into these, you know, modern slavery situations. Like, why do you think this... This is something that occurs so frequently. I mean, it, it, it's, mm -hmm. it just seems, you know, such an awful part of this, of this global epidemic. You are so right, and that is such a good question. And I believe the reason that we see these intimate partners or family members so often complicit and in, or even uh, orchestrating and involved in the trafficking is because, by definition, that intimate partner that family member, that close relative or friend already has the trust that you need, that a trafficker needs to have to, to kind of begin the force, fraud, and coercion. These people already have frequently the love, the trust, or even the reliance on them as a child, they are reliant on that family. Uh, if you have an individual who is in a, a violent relationship with an intimate partner, they are already under the power and control of that individual. So this is just ripe for further violence and exploitation to occur. I think Jules, um, Jules, you know, recently you went to Ukraine last year um, and you said it was the first time you'd ever seen trafficking, maybe not you, but you and your team had seen yeah. trafficking happen firsthand. And yeah. can you explain the story you told me about um, actually seeing traffickers getting girls into cars? Because I think it, it's almost that trust thing we're talking about. It's not an intimate partner yeah. or a family member, but it's it's that story of... Yeah, it was, you're so right. It's this, it's this abuse of trust, especially when there's kind of vulnerability in, involved. And there were people standing there with a high-vis jacket on and a white sign saying free ride to Paris or a job in Berlin. And because they're wearing this high-vis jacket, people immediately think they're an official or a part of a charity. And so that trust is there. And, and there were even people kind of running up and down the queues and queues of people handing out things like baby wipes, sanitary mm -hmm. towels, and using that as a way to kind of build trust. And I think in all the stories that we hear um, from survivors of, of human trafficking, it always begins with that deceit through building a kind of fake but trusted relationship, whether it's a family member, a partner, a pretend job offer or something. It's and, and I can't imagine how hard that is to, to reckon with when you then go through the horrific ordeal that you do to know where it all, all began. I mean, that's that's another thing is like the, the mental side of, of it when when it is a, such a close person, it must be 
uh, harrowing for, for that person. I think that you bring up such a good point um, because th- I do think that if a trafficker initially has the trust of the victim, it is much easier for them to f- to capitalize on that trust and to put them into a position of exploitation where the victim doesn't have a choice. Another thing that can um, facilitate that trafficking is when you have a person, and this is exactly what Jules described, where you have a person who is desperate. They are desperate. And that is why I have often thought that, you know, awareness raising alone will not work because people sometimes know that there is a risk out there that bad things can happen, but they just hope and pray that, and I trust this one individual and hope and pray that won't happen to me because I am so desperate to leave. And that's why I think that, you know, awareness alone, sometimes people know that these risks exist, but their situation is so deplorable and so desperate that they they hope and they have faith that they trust that this one is going to work out and I won't be, you know, some people don't know at all. And, but the, some do really because their situation is that desperate. And, and so often, Cindy, it's women and children that are the ones that are desperate. They are the most vulnerable and without wishing to keep drawing on the same example of the Ukraine, but you know, there's conscription, every man must fight. Therefore, women and children, by definition, are all on their own crossing that border. And that's just one example of countless around the world where it is often women and children that are the most vulnerable. And my question to you is then, why is it so important that we have to approach this with a gender lens, whether we, we like it or not? And how does that influence your thinking and your strategy and your approach at the Trafficking in Persons Office? You know, Jules, you bring up such a good point. Um, We absolutely have to have a gender lens because we know that women and girls are vulnerable. Um, And that is exactly why, really, in fact, the Biden administration has a focus on gender equality and focusing simply on promoting gender equality under the law because women will be less vulnerable if they are less forced into being reliant on somebody else. If I am able to work and have a proper wage and be promoted properly, I am less reliant on an abusive husband. I am less reliant on someone who's gonna take advantage of me because I can take it, I can take care of myself. And I think that that also brings us back to, you use, I, I think that that gender lens is so important And for those very same reasons that we were talking about earlier, because traffickers prey on individuals who are vulnerable, I think we need to have a gender lens, but also an equity lens to make sure that we're not overlooking marginalized communities, because that's exactly who the traffickers are targeting. Um, And so we have to have a racial lens, an ethnic lens, an LGBTQI community lens. Make sure that no vulnerable communities that traffickers will target. Migrants that don't have proper paperwork, they are very vulnerable because they can be threatened to be turned over to immigration. So we need to make sure that those communities are in our sights because they sure are in the sights of the traffickers. Something that we we also have been 
sort of coming up against in our time as as um, sort of abolitionists, as we call ourselves, but um, is that the 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 fact that we have to record or people the infrastructure to record and the data around you know what's actually happening how many people are being trafficked into the UK or whatever into America whatever it is or out for that reason or just within the country on its own but um, you know have have the U has the US faced similar monitoring issues at state and federal level um, and and how is it what what has it done to overcome these recording challenges. I think that that's a great question because, and, and, you know, our office really tries hard to capitalize on the recording that other countries do by, by publishing our tip report. We try to say this was the number of victims who were identified. This was the number that were, were, were provided shelter. This is the number that investigations were started. And we, through our tip report, we really try to provide that resource that diagnostic and diplomatic tool for other countries to use, other NGOs to use, but we also do it here ourselves. And I think what we have in, in the United States, most trafficking victims will be identified at that, at that local level. And so what we have done is tried to really foster uh, these collaborative, coordinated community responses among all the actors and stakeholders at the local level who could encounter a victim and could and who could assist that victim. And so we have tried to create really cohesive safety nets within the within the the lo local places. Um, and we have put a lot of money toward task forces. Um, the, Do those task forces then report into you? That's a really good question. And no, they don't. We do not have in the U.S. a national accounting and referral mechanism. And we do have federal coordination at the federal level. But that, you know, so we actually do have, for example, the president's interagency task force where we have 20 federal agencies come together and a representative from the advisory council so a rep one of the one of our survivor advocates a person with lived experience they participate in that but then we replicate that coordination throughout each stage there's state level county level local level i think one of the things that our ngos and advocates have told us is if some individuals would not want to be identified in a federal mechanism for the reasons that we talked about earlier. They have a fear that that would that they would be deported. They have a fear that they would be uh, caught up and actually accused of crimes that they were forced to commit. And so we have tried to make our community task forces and services available without fear of reprisal, um, without fear that something is going to bad happen to you. Now, we certainly encourage you to please tell the police, help us find these bad guys accountable, help us prevent this from having, but some victims are not going to feel comfortable doing that. And so we want them to be able to receive all the services, um, even if they don't want to actually report make a formal report. 
This is a slightly off piece, but I was reading the other day about um, the amount of people being trafficked from South America up through Panama, through treacherous rainforests with more snakes than I bear to think about. And it said something like close to half a million people, they estimate, to cross over this year alone. Um, that, and th- those are huge numbers and uh, uh, absolutely rife for traffickers. When the US is faced with something like that, how cooperative are foreign governments or foreign police forces? Because how are you supposed to tackle something like that when it's so far from home, yet such a big impact to your borders? You know what? You brought up a great question. And I actually want to commend you and appreciate for something that you said. You mentioned these many, many individuals who are fleeing their home countries and going and funneling up through the Darien Gap, which, as you said, is a dangerous and treacherous um, trek to make. And you use such a good term. You said that is rife with possibilities for trafficking. And that's important for us to distinguish. Many of these people are at some point, they're engaging in a voluntary trek to get a better life for themselves and their families. So you bring up such a good point. Not every person who is coming up is a trafficking victim, but every one of them is certainly uh, vulnerable to it because of the situations that you described. And so the Biden administration in particular is trying to, uh, we actually do have pretty good relationships with not only, to your good point, the governments that individuals are crossing, the countries that they're crossing along the way, but also with the NGOs on the ground who are the ones doing a lot of the heavy lifting and providing safety and security. So not only is it important for the U.S. government to have good relationships with other governments in the area, but also with those NGO service providers, the multilateral organizations, the IOM, the UNODC. This is something we've all got to work on because to your point, this is in the best of circumstances, this is a terrible, treacherous and dangerous journey. And so my office in particular is not only monitoring what's happening in those countries through our tip report and trying to capture numbers, but also um, making sure that some of our uh, assistance, our programs is going to that region to make sure that individuals making this really frightening journey are properly screened to see if they are victims of trafficking um, and make sure that that we are not putting them even in a more vulnerable situation. So working with uh, multilateral organizations and in and local NGOs. Yeah, Cindy, I think I think everyone can take a leaf from your book. You know, we can all stir the soup. We can all answer the hotline. It starts within our own communities and and everyone can get involved. You are so right. How and what would you tell everyone who's listening and what advice would you give to to people who who are listening or or who might come across this podcast? Hopefully, fingers crossed they do um, on on how they can get involved, how they can help. Well, first of all, I would say to anybody that wanted to know, thank you for your interest. Your participation and your interest and your leadership and advocacy is needed and it's valuable. Um, So I would say, first of all, thank you. And I would secondly say to make sure 
that as you embrace this issue and as you are engaged in looking for opportunities to be helpful, make sure that you have your eye out and your care and your concern out for all victims of trafficking, even those who are a different gender than you might think, even those who are not citizens of the country that you live in, even those who are parts of communities that you don't frequent. We need, just make sure that your care and your concern is expansive enough to cover all the victims. And then the other thing that I would say is that getting involved, there are so many ways that you can. Number one, educate yourself. Be on the lookout because um, they're, they're in your neighborhood. Be on the lookout. I know one of the things that I really like about if you're in the United States, we have the human trafficking hotline, the national human trafficking hotline that anyone can call, not just a person who th they themselves may be victimized, but if you're concerned about somebody and you wanna know, hey, should I be concerned? You can call and it's a wealth of information and it provides such a service. And so, you know, take that step. And if you can volunteer, there are lots of things that people can do. You can volunteer. I found it to be so personally rewarding. It almost felt guilty to go and spend my Tuesday evenings um, at, a, at the shelter because I felt like it benefited me. I learned things. I met amazing people. It made me more aware of what was going on. I, I, you know, I hard, I had a hard time saying I'm volunteering there because I received so much benefit from it. Thank you, Cindy. That's a great, great answer. Um, and thank you also for joining us today. It's been fantastic to talk to you. We'd love to end on, on a story of hope. It can be overfacing sometimes when you think about the numbers of people in trafficking and how those numbers are rising, not shrinking. Um, and we'd love to ask you for a moment in your career where you felt like you had a massive breakthrough or a time in your experience of human trafficking where you were faced with extreme kindness or something that you witnessed that actually spurs you on to feel like, yes, we're making progress. Thank you so much for that thoughtful question. And it is true, you know, I've, I've been doing this work for 30 years now and there have been so many times, please trust me, that along the 30 years, wonderful, good things have happened because I wouldn't still be doing it. You know, <laughs> had I had to have a constant reoccurrence of good and positive things happened, whether it be, you know, I got a conviction or a woman that I brought into the shelter went and was the first individual to go into the transitional housing where she could live for free in a fully furnished apartment for two years. But I think the thing that happened most, there was a recent occurrence that I really felt I was, a, I was fortunate to be able to witness. And that is, I mentioned earlier that we have in the US this President's Interagency Task Force, where 20 of the highest officials, cabinet level leaders and powerful people, these are some tall trees, y'all, tall trees, come and sit around this table. and. I had the great honor to be there. I'm sitting next to the Secretary of State. There's the Attorney General. There's the um, the Secretary of um, Homeland Security. And at this table, with an equal seat of prominence, an equal amount of time given to present uh, the individual's thoughts, was a member of our advisory council, which is made up of 
survivors and those with lived experience. And so Brenda Myers Powell, who I had the opportunity to talk to her beforehand, she spoke and captured the attention of the 20 highest officials in the United States government. And she had a platform and her expertise, which was so different and so complimentary and powerful, she had an opportunity to speak. And I remember sitting at that table thinking, boy, I've been at this since a long time, 93, and we have come a long way. And that really gave me hope because she was able to provide counsel, wise counsel and wisdom that nobody else at that table could have. It was so important that she was there. I hope she knows how much I enjoyed having the chance to meet with her and how powerful her statement was. And so that's, I think that's the thing that's happened most recently that has made me think, I am going to get up tomorrow and keep doing this work. <laughs> I love and it. And thank God for that, Cindy. Thank God for that. <laughs> oh, well, Cindy, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for sharing your thoughts and wisdom and giving us a snapshot into kind of what's happening in America and, and what your office is doing. It's so, it's such integral work. And I think we love, um, we love to know that, the US is is just as behind this as the UK and that we're all abolitionists together and that, you know, no matter where you are and where you live, you can be an abolitionist and you can you can do something about this. So thank you so much. And um, we really look forward to meeting one day. I would love that. And thank you for your advocacy and your leadership for using your power and your voice to raise awareness um, to people who, who many times don't have that platform. So thank you for all that you do. It's been a real pleasure to visit with y'all and I do look forward to meeting you. Thank you so much to Ambassador Cindy Dyer for taking the time out of her extremely busy schedule to come and speak to us today. Make sure you look into the episode show notes to see more information about Cindy's work as well as some of the great places to start if you'd like to join the fight with us to rid the world of modern slavery. Next week, we speak to One Republic's lead guitarist, Zach Filkins, and international justice missions, Molly Hodson. When the band aren't on stage wowing massive crowds all over the world, they've made a real and genuine commitment to lending their voice to the fight against modern slavery. Zach and Molly talk about their combined efforts to combat human trafficking. Before next week's episode, be sure to take a look at the show notes for more information about how you can join us in the fight to end modern slavery. See you next week. Floodlight is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.